Our second reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 through 35. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Bring to me seventy of the elders of Israel. These men are the leaders among the people. Bring them to the meeting tent. Let them stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there. The Spirit is on you now, but I will give I will also give some of that spirit to them. Then they will help you take care of these people. In this way, you will not have to be responsible for these people alone. Tell the people this. Make yourselves ready for tomorrow. Tomorrow you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you cried out and said, We need to eat meat. It was better for us in Egypt. So now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You would eat it for more than one or two or five or ten or even twenty days. You will eat that meat for a whole month until you are sick of it. This will happen to you because you complained against the Lord. He lives among you and knows what you need. But you cried and complained to him. You said, why did we ever leave Egypt? Moses said, there are 600,000 soldiers here. And you say, I will give them enough meat to eat for a whole month. If we were to kill all the sheep and cattle, that would still not be enough to feed this people for a month. And if we caught all the fish in the sea, it would not be enough for them. But the Lord said to Moses, don't limit my power. You will see that I can do what I say I can do. So Moses went out to speak with the people. He told them what the Lord said. Then he gathered 70 of the elders together and told them to stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. He put on the 70 elders some of the same spirit that was on Moses. After the spirit came down on them, they began to prophesy. But that was the only time they ever did this. Two of the elders, Eldad and Medad, did not go out to the tent. Their names were on the list of elders, but they stayed in the camp. But the spirit also came on them, and they began prophesying in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, The man said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, said to Moses, Moses, sir, you must stop them. Joshua had been Moses' helper since Joshua was a boy. But Moses answered, Are you afraid the people will think that I am not the leader now? I wish that all the Lord's people were able to prophesy. I wish that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Then Moses and the leaders of Israel went back to the camp. Then the Lord made a powerful wind to blow in from the sea, and it blew quail into the area all around the camp. There were so many birds that the ground was covered. There were, they were about three feet deep on the ground. There were quail in every direction as far as a man can walk in one day. They went out and gathered quail all that day and all that night, and they gathered quail all the next day too. The smallest amount anyone gathered was 60 bushels. Then the people spread the quail meat all around the camp to dry in the sun. People began to eat the meat, but the Lord became very angry. While the meat was still in their mouths before the people could finish eating it, the Lord caused the people to become very sick and die. So the people named that place Kibroth Hatava because there they buried those who had the strong desire for meat. From Kibroth Hatava, the people traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. This is the word of the Lord.
in your bulletins, there's a, a little freestanding sheet, uh, which is about this, our hymnals that are falling apart. So we're going to replace some of the hymnals. Uh, and if you want to give $20 to buy a hymnal, we'll, we'll put your name on a book plate in there. If you want to dedicate it in someone's honor, we'll put that on the book plate in there. And you can do that uh, using this. I'm going to... Uh, Fill out one of these myself uh, this morning. Um, this sermon is long, so you've been warned. <laughs> I want to begin this sermon with two confessions. Confession number one, when pastors get together, they often complain about the members of their congregations. Isn't that terrible? But it's true. I didn't know that until I became a pastor and started going to pastor-only events. It was a real eye-opener for me. The Reverend Bruce McIver has a book with a great title, Stories I Could Not Tell While I Was a Pastor. For 30 years, McIver had served a Baptist church in Texas, so he had a lot of stories. Some of these stories are about himself, about his mistakes in ministry, things that they don't teach you in seminary, lessons that you learn the hard way. But other stories in this book are about the people in his church who were a burr under his saddle. People who were never satisfied, people who always knew better than him, people who thrived on drama people who imagined that the universe really did revolve around them. Pastors complain to other pastors because only a pastor understands the particular nature of being a pastor, just as only a president can understand the burdens of being in the White, uh, in the White House. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 11 through 15, we overhear a pastor complaining. We hear Moses complaining to God about his flock. And trust me, Moses was not the last pastor to complain about the very people that God had entrusted to his care. Complaining pastors is such a common problem, in fact, that I remember Bill Thompson rebuking a group of pastors for this very thing. In our former presbytery, Bill was the pastor to pastors. His job was to provide pastoral care for the pastors in the presbytery. And he and I belonged to a group of pastors who met once a month for lunch. At those meetings, the conversation often turned to grumbling about the people in our churches. And Bill Thompson reprimanded us. And he was right. Pastors have been known to complain about the members of their churches. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but that is confession number one. Confession number two. When I first read Numbers chapter 11, it sounded to me like a sharp rebuke to all of those whiny, grumbling sheep, the Israelites, who were never satisfied with what their good shepherd Moses had provided to them. And each time God blasts those people for making Moses' life miserable. I was looking forward to preaching that sermon. 
The people start complaining and God sends fire to burn the edge of the camp. That's a God that I can like. The people grumble about the manna and they wish they had meat and God sends them so much meat that it's coming out of their noses. That's a God that I can endorse. But as I took a closer look at this chapter, I realized that both the shepherd Moses and the sheep, the Israelites, are in the same boat. They're all a bunch of whiners. They're all a bunch of self-focused complainers. They're all a bunch of ungrateful, faithless grumblers. And God teaches both the sheep and the shepherd the very same lesson. So back on Monday, I was looking forward to preaching this sermon. But as so often happens, come Sunday morning, the preacher is once again preaching to himself. I already don't like this sermon. That's confession number two. Last week we saw how after a year of preparation at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel are finally getting moving. They're finally bound for the promised land. The cloud of smoke and the pillar of fire lift and then move. And then for three days the children of Israel get to stretch their legs and they get to see some new scenery. And after three days of travel, the pillar stops and the people camp and then the complaining begins. Now, chapter 11 has two stories, a short one covered in the first three verses and a long one that unfolds in the rest of the chapter. The first story is about the people complaining. We don't know what they're complaining about, but God hears them and he's angry. And then a fire from the Lord burns the edges of the camp and the people come running to Moses and asking for help and Moses prays to God and the fire stops. Part of this first little story is right and part of it's wrong. The wrong part is that the people are complaining because complaining is the opposite of contentment and we probably don't preach about it enough but contentment is one of the characteristics of a godly person. Contentment forms the bookends of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If I have another God, that means that Almighty God is not enough. I'm not content with Yahweh. I want something more. You know, maybe Yahweh's my main squeeze, but give me a little sideline action with Baal and Asherah too. The first commandment is about finding our contentment and our satisfaction in one God and in him alone. And then the last commandment, number 10, is thou shalt not covet. Coveting is wanting things that other people have. Coveting is a lack of contentment. When we are malcontents, when we complain against God, we are saying that what God has given us is not enough. We're saying that God is a stingy God, that he's not willing to give us the things that we need. We're saying that God is an inadequate God, that he's not able to give us the things that we need. We're saying that God is an unwise God, not knowing what it is that we need. When we complain against God, we show our lack of trust and faith in God. Now, while complaining against God is bad, complaining to God can be an act of faith. Many of the Psalms begin with a complaint. 
David cries out to the Lord. He says that he's in trouble. He has his enemies. He needs help. David makes his difficult situation known to God because he trusts God. And these complaint psalms always end with an affirmation that God is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. There is nothing wrong about asking God for what you need. That's a sign of trust and faith. But there is a kind of grumbling that suggests that we think that God is not really on the throne, that he's not really on the ball. And it's that kind of complaining that we need to be very careful about because that kind of complaining shows a lack of faith. So here are the Israelites, three days' journey on their first leg of the pilgrimage to the promised land leading up to this time God already has rescued them out of slavery. God has destroyed an Egyptian army in the Red Sea. God spoke directly to Moses and gave him the law and God made food fall out of the sky. It's remarkable stuff. It's the kind of stuff that ought to convince you that God can do anything, that God can accomplish far more than we can ask or imagine, and still the people are complaining as if God messed up or God was asleep on the job and it makes God angry and he sends a fire to singe the edge of the camp. That's the bad part of the first little story, but there's a good part too. And that part is that the people come running to Moses and Moses intercedes with God on their behalf and God relents. That's part of what a shepherd does for his flock. A shepherd prays for his sheep. A shepherd asks God to forgive the people, to look on them with favor, to pour out his blessings on them. That's part of the job description of a pastor. A pastor prays for his people. That's right and that's good. Maybe you remember that Jesus, the good shepherd, also prays for us, which is amazing to think about. Jesus intercedes with the Father on our behalf. Jesus bought us with his own blood. We belong to him. And he pleads our case for us before the Father. Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. We have a great high priest who has gone to live with God in heaven. He is Jesus, the Son of God. So let us continue to express our faith in him. Jesus, our high priest, is able to understand our weaknesses. When Jesus lived on earth, he was tempted in every way. He was tempted in the same ways that we are tempted, but he never sinned. With Jesus as our high priest, we can feel free to come before God's throne where there is grace. There we receive mercy and kindness to help us when we need it. Mercy and kindness when we need it. I need it every day. So that's story number one. Story number two is a lot longer. It reveals things in a fuller and a more complicated way. So let's dig into some of that. Verses four through six read this way. The foreigners who had joined the Israelites began wanting other things to eat. Soon all the Israelites began complaining again. 
The people said, we want to eat meat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That fish cost us nothing. We had good vegetables like cucumbers and melons and chives and onions and garlic. But now we've lost our strength. We never eat anything, only this manna. Now, it's interesting that there were other people besides Israelites in the camp. There were other people who came up out of Egypt during the Exodus. From the very beginning, the chosen people are ethnically mixed. Their unity comes from observing the law of Moses. Being a descendant of Abraham might make you a Jew in the flesh, but a real Jew, a spiritual Jew, is someone who has a relationship with God through his revealed law. So the foreigners complain And then the Israelites start complaining again, and the chant begins, we want meat, we want meat, we want meat. Grumbling and complaining are very contagious. And grumbling and complaining also lead us down paths of nostalgia. Oh, the food back in Egypt. It was so good. Let's talk about this grumbling germ, a germ that's more contagious than COVID. You may not have noticed until I pointed out to you that our hymnals are in tatters. But now that the pastor has pointed that out to you, you may start noticing worn-out hymnals everywhere. And you may say to your pewmate, what is wrong with the worship committee? Why are they not doing their job? And now that I think about it, the carpet up here at the front of the sanctuary, it's looking pretty shabby too. I thought we had a sexton. This place is going to the dogs. And you know what? It wasn't this way before. When Pastor Bill was here, things were ship-shaped. No tatty hymnals, no carpet stains. The communion ushers moved like precision soldiers in a marching formation, and all the girls wore white gloves. Come to think of it, the sermons were better too. Grumbling is contagious, and it's also nostalgic. The Israelites are in a new situation. It's a hard situation. They're out in a desert. They're away from crops and streams of water. They're in a new situation, but that situation, in fact, is part of God's plan for them. God is doing something for them. He's doing something in them, and he's doing something through them. He has redeemed them out of Egypt, and he's in the process of making them into a nation that's going to be a blessing to all nations. They're in a new situation. Yes, it's hard, but it's also a situation that is ripe and rich with purpose and value and meaning. The children of Israel are under the providential care of Almighty God, and they are doing something big and important. But in their smallness and in their pettiness, In their lack of trust in God, they begin to look backwards rather than forward. Oh, it was so sweet back in Egypt. The garlic and the cucumbers and all of that free fish. They're looking backward to what, in fact, 
was slavery. Notice how nostalgia forgets the miserable things about the past. The whiners don't mention the lash of the slave masters or the bricks that they had to make without straw or the male children who were murdered because Pharaoh was afraid of the slaves overthrowing his kingdom. The whiners forget all about that and they remember the good food because they hate the manna. I just realized that song that we sing after the passing of the peace mentions manna. I, we're gonna, I feel badly about manna now. If God is doing something great with this church, if God is going to accomplish great things in your life and in your family's life, the journey forward will not be easy. And you will be tempted to look back. Let me tell you this straight up. God's plan for your life is not in the past. It's in the future. God promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. And that means that God will provide for us during the journey. He will give us our daily bread, which may mean just manna and not fish and garlic. But remember that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Not take up your bed and follow me. He didn't say, relax in your lazy boy and watch some TV while I do the heavy lifting. But I'm getting off track. What I want you to notice is that complaining is contagious, and so we need to guard our lips and not spread the contagion of discontent and I want you to notice that complaining is often based on a nostalgic view of the past we remember the good but we forget the bad and this nostalgic complaining keeps us from doing what God is calling us to namely making a journey forward into a better land in verse 10 through 15 we hear Moses complaining why did you bring this trouble on me what did I do wrong? Why did you give me responsibility over all of these people? I have to carry them like a nurse carries a baby. Why do you force me to do this? I don't have enough meat for all these people, and they keep complaining to me. Give me meat. Give us meat. Give us meat. Kill me, God. Let me die now. Then I will be finished with all of my troubles. That's how pastors sound when they get together. Pastors are such a bunch of spiritual giants. And don't get me wrong, there's a kernel of truth in what Moses is saying here. The constant complaints of the sheep weary the shepherds, that is for sure. The New Testament talks about the same thing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, we read, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. In the past couple of months, the session has had to take a number of complicated decisions, and not everyone has been happy with those decisions, but I can assure you that all of those decisions have been made carefully, 
and honestly and openly and prayerfully and with a full desire to bless and care for this congregation as a whole and a full desire to bless and care for each one of our members. Part of leadership is making decisions. In any organization, someone has to make the calls. Someone has to say, turn right at the next light without consulting every person riding on the bus. Someone has to say, run the play-action pass without polling every fan in the stands. Someone has to say, here's the tempo for this piece without consulting the base section. That's the nature of leadership. But all of the griping and the moaning and all of the Sunday morning quarterbacks and armchair generals are wearying and exasperating to those who bear the burden of leadership. It is the reason why people don't want to be in leadership. Why people don't want to serve on the session or on the school board because no matter what decision you make, there will be someone who knows better than you and will give you an earful at the back of the sanctuary after the service or will tear off a hot email to you in the middle of the night. Moses' whiny complaint is kind of funny. But let me tell you, in all honesty, there have been plenty of pastors who have been driven by their flocks to pray, let me die now and be finished with this trouble. Let me talk about the 70 elders. Part of God's solution to Moses' problem is telling him to share his leadership with 70 men. In this way, you will not have to be responsible for these people alone, is what God says. Leaders need partners We are led in this church by the session, which is a group of nine elders. They do not rule alone. They rule only as a body. An elder is only an elder in relationship to the whole session, which is why when the session makes a decision after a long debate, that decision is the decision of the whole session, no matter how the voting went. And thus it is the decision of the whole church as the session leads the church. Everyone, of course, laughs about committees and treats them like the bane of Presbyterian life, but there is a wisdom in committees. Decision in committees are taken after consideration, after listening to one another, after open and respectful debate. It is the opposite of one-man rule. It is the opposite of leadership by gut instinct. It is slower, but I think it's wiser. And here in Numbers chapter 11, God tells Moses to get himself a committee because he can't do the job alone. In verses 8 through 30, we see Joshua, who is Moses' assistant and who will later be his successor. Joshua's worried about this idea of Moses sharing his leadership authority with other people. God sends his Holy Spirit onto these 70 elders, and Moses' authority, in a sense, is distributed throughout the committee. And Joshua's worried. He's jealous for the authority of Moses. He doesn't want to see it diluted. He wants his boss to be the strong man, unchallenged by any other. In Numbers chapter 12, which we'll deal with next week, we will see a challenge to Moses' authority, Other people who think that they can 
lead the children of Israel just as well as Moses. It's a serious issue, and we'll talk about it next week. But in chapter 11, you need to notice that Moses is not jealous for his power. He's happy to share it. He wants everybody to be anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he's not jealous of his power because he never sought the power in the first place. Moses did not go out into the wilderness looking for a burning bush to give him a commandment to lead the children of Israel. Moses wasn't ambitious or looking for a big crowd to rule. Instead, God comes to Moses and said, I've got this job I want you to do. And Moses says, I think you've got the wrong man. People who are genuinely called by God to lead in the church, people who are not false prophets, are not looking to lord it over others, are not looking for power and control. People who are called by God follow reluctantly. Anyone who is a pastor because they want to get rich and famous is a false prophet. So what do we do about all of this? What do we do about grumbling and complaining spirits? I like how the King James Version opens our chapter. It reads this way. Oh, and by the way, in the King James, it also does, I forget how it describes them being unhappy about the uh, the quail when they finally get it. But in the King James, it literally says it comes out their noses, okay, which is kind of fun. The passage begins, and when the people complained, it displeased God, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. The book of Numbers is a book about the pilgrimage of the people of God. It's a book about our lives as Christians. And in this book, you're going to discover there's a lot of grumbling. This is the beginning of the grumbling, but it goes on. And in all of these cases, the grumbling never pleases God. And in all of these cases, the grumbling leads to terrible consequences. So what are we as the church to do about our grumbling spirits? Well, rather than talking about what you need to do, let me talk about what I need to do. In the five verses where Moses grumbles and complains to God about the people that he has been called to shepherd. Moses refers to himself more than 20 times. Moses' eyes are on Moses. All Moses can see is how unhappy Moses, poor, poor, pitiful Moses. When I am inclined to grumble and complain, I need to get my eyes off myself because, you know, it really isn't all about me. Grumblers are incredibly self-focused. They really imagine that they alone in the universe have been singled out for this kind of suffering. When we are inclined to grumble and complain, we need to get our eyes off ourselves. But where should our eyes be? Well, if we're in leadership, it needs to be in two places. It needs to be on the sheep that we're leading, and it needs to be on God in whose name we lead. 
Moses' calling is to care for his people. And part of that calling is bringing the word of God to the people of God. That's his role as the prophet. And part of his calling is to bring the needs of the people of God to the attention of God. That's his role as a priest or as an intercessor. In the first little story, those first couple of verses, Moses intercedes on behalf of his people as he should. And the problem stops. In the second story, Moses just whines and complains about his people whining and complaining. And what he needs to do is shut up and start praying to God. So Moses' eyes, my eyes, need to be on the sheep. But Moses' eyes also need to be on the good shepherd, on God, because God is the provider, because God is the architect of providential history, because God has placed us where we are today for his purpose and his reason, because we need to trust God and believe that God is at work, even in hard circumstances, saving and sanctifying his sheep. Pastors complaining about unsanctified congregants is as stupid as emergency room doctors complaining about sick and injured patients. Oh, this job as an ER doctor would be great if it just weren't for all these sick people. How stupid is that? And as pastors, we are called to care for people who are not yet saved who are on the way to being saved, and people who are saved but not yet fully sanctified. And that means these are people with problems, and it's our job to love them. Now I have to shut up myself now. Not just because I'm preaching to myself, but because uh, the sermon is too long. Grumbling and complaining reveals our unhappiness with how things are, And we grumble and complain thinking that the world around us or the people around us need to change. My life would be good if he would just change. But what our complaining spirits reveal, in fact, is that what needs to change is our own heart. Complainers need to know God's grace. Grumblers need to feel God's love and forgiveness. When I complain, I am testifying to the world that I need to be rescued by my Redeemer because the mess that we're complaining about is usually a mess that we ourselves have made and that we don't know how to fix. And so we need God to rescue us and to set us free from bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. And here's the great news. God will do that. That's what he does. That's the business he's in, if we ask him. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you and we thank you for these stories about your people from long ago. And pray that Uh, the timeless truths of Scripture would uh, find us where we live in our circumstances. I pray that uh, your word would fly straight and true and find its mark. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.